0: I think that there are lots of concerns about ecological changes that result in the introduction of new diseases, or I should say, um, new human conditions, uh, which are very important to think about.
1: Welcome. You're listening to Amplifier, raising voices against rising temperatures. We're a group of Emory students, alumni, and a professor passionate about bringing people together around the current climate crisis. We aim to equip listeners to accelerate climate action by providing accessible information, amplifying diverse voices, and highlighting the intersections of environmental issues. Join us this season as we explore the relationship between the climate crisis and COVID 19. Hi,
2: I'm Meg Withers. In our second episode on environmental racism and climate justice, Hallie Bradshaw spoke about the disproportionate impacts climate change could have on low income minority communities, such as hurricanes hitting the Gulf Coast and destroying infrastructure. Climate change and COVID-19 are similar in that they both have inequitable impacts on public health. Cancer Alley in southeast Louisiana is one community facing these negative health impacts. We know that air pollution is a contributing factor to climate change, and Cancer Alley has more than 150 oil refineries and chemical plants. According to The Guardian, these plants pollute the air, making residents 50% more likely to develop cancer than the average American, and giving Cancer Alley its name. Most recently, a corporation called Formosa Plastics has made plans to build a factory in Cancer Alley, which would release even more toxic chemicals into the air and water. This community has also been hard hit by both COVID-19 and pollution, In April, St. James, a parish in Cancer Alley, had the highest death rate from coronavirus in the United States, surmised to be the result of the area's long history of pollution. Residents in this community are already suffering from chronic health conditions, and a lack of resources makes them more vulnerable to COVID-19 and climate change. We had the pleasure of speaking with Sharon Levine, the founder and president of Rye St. James, a grassroots organization that seeks to fight pollution in Cancer Alley. Levine is a former special education teacher and now a full-time activist who has helped to raise awareness about toxic pollutants in her community. She has organized marches and demonstrations and even testified before the U.S. House of Representatives Subcommittee on Environment and Climate Change. Levine spoke with us about how pollution and COVID 19 have impacted health in her community and why Rise St. James has taken action against Formosa plastics. Could you describe more about the organization and exactly what you're doing to, to combat these issues?
3: Rise St. James is a faith-based organization geared toward the environment and the safety and the health and the protection of our people and our environment. We are here to protect the water, the soil and the air and the safety of the residents of St. James Parish. It was formed because Formosa want to be built in our area. And if Formosa is built, they're gonna have 14 chemical plants inside the complex. We already have 12 in the fifth district. We have nine in the fourth district. So 12 plus 14, we will not be able to breathe the air. We will not be able to live. Just like I said before, we'll die off. Maybe one, one at a time, maybe two at a time. We don't know. And because I always, I, I told I said, dear Lord, when I retire, I don't want it to just sit around in the house. I want to be able to do something. I don't want just be a bump on the log and just get up in the morning, drink your coffee and sit on the porch and watch the cars go by. I wanted to do something. So he picked something and he picked this for me to do. So, uh, and after I retired, before I retired, I said, since I started working with RISE in 2018, I said, oh Lord, I don't know. I, I must've asked for something. Boy, i got this big job to do.
2: Your community is already... Feeling the effects of of pollution and how that impacts your health. Could you describe that a little bit?
3: Well, the pollution is so bad until certain times of the day. If you go outside, you can't stay out there long. You can't breathe the air because it's so bad. The other day I walked outside around about five o'clock. I was on the phone talking to my attorney. And I went outside because my cell phone, no, you can't, the reception is kind of bad inside the house. So I went outside. I said, oh Lord, let me go back inside. I said, it smell like oil out here. She said, really? I said, ooh. She said, I feel so sorry for you all. I said, me too. I said, I can't breathe because the, the oil just got in my nostrils. Oh, it smell like somebody just wasted oil somewhere around my house. That's how bad it was. Oh my God. I don't wish anybody to come build here in this area unless the plants are shut down because you will not if you come out here and live, you might get sick sicker than the ones that have been living here all our lives. you might get sicker faster. So the air is bad. the water we can't drink the water, benzene been put into the water from these chemical plants and other chemicals and benzene is cancer causing. So we can't drink the water we have to buy a bottle of water. We pay a water bill every month but we can't drink the water, isn't that something? That's what Rise St. James going to bring up to the parish council after we finished with Formosa. So why, why should we pay a water bill and we can't drink the water? We can bathe in it, but if Formosa come here, you won't be able to bathe in it either because you're gonna itch. We itch out a little bit. So, and then our soil is so bad until we can't grow a productive garden. Our pecan trees bear every other year. When they bear, they don't bear for the whole season. Look like the season is cut down, it's cut short, like. So the soil is not what it, what, it, what it used to be. And then when I became 50, I noticed my health started declining. So I thought maybe you know after you make 50, I guess everybody gets like that. I didn't know, I just thought that. And then uh, in 2016, when they diagnosed me with, with autoimmune hepatitis, I still didn't associate it with the chemical plants until, until I started reading and they say, autoimmune uh, illness is caused from industrial pollutants. And I said, that's where I got this from. Then after that, in 2019, the doctor said I had aluminum in my body. I said, how did I get that doc? <laughs> she, she, said, she said, I don't know, but she said, it's, it's, it's in your blood. And, and I said, well, but how much am I supposed to have in my body? She said, zero. <laughs> so I said, dear Lord, you got to help me. It's a lot I need to learn.
2: Would you say that the pollution and the effects of the pollution in your area have made your community more vulnerable to COVID-19?
3: We got a double whammy. got the pollution plus COVID. Yes. So, yes. It's, it's, a, it's a hard pill to swallow because other communities only have one thing, COVID. We have the pollution plus COVID.
2: So, how can people get involved what are some actions that or or steps that people could take to help residents of Cancer Alley or resources that they could use to learn more about what's going on basically what steps would you recommend rising activists take to keep their community safer from air pollution and climate change
3: i would tell them to get involved that's the main thing you can't just sit at the house and talk about it. you have to do things about it and um they need to educate themselves on what's going on and once you educate yourself you can bring it to the community because trust me they don't know I know they don't know so um and for other people to help us we want them to get the word out to whatever public officials that's in my office that can help us it might be a friend of theirs or a cousin or whatever. Get to those people and talk to those people for us and ask them to help save St. James, help save Cancer Alley. We have had enough. We want to live. We want to breathe the air. We want to be able to breathe clean air. So they can help us by media, outreach. And talk to our rise members, and they can also tell them what, what they need to do. But the main thing is to do to help get the word out about St. James because people don't even know there is a St. James.
2: COVID-19 has increased awareness about disproportionate health impacts. But it's also been a wake-up call for the world to better prepare for emerging diseases. Take, for example, Nepal's outbreaks of dengue fever. When dengue outbreaks began to spread to Asia, Nepal initially didn't have anything to worry about. Mosquitoes that spread dengue tend to thrive in warmer environments over 70 degrees Fahrenheit, and Nepal's high altitude regions were much too cold for this. However, this has changed with rising temperatures, and in 2019, Nepal suffered a severe dengue outbreak that infected more than 10,000 people. Researchers now predict that climate change will put more than 500 million people at risk of diseases like dengue just in the next 30 years. As the climate changes temperatures and rainfall patterns, tropical diseases can expand their reach. Some scientists even predict that climate change can uncover past diseases. In 2016, a heatwave in Siberia melted an area of permafrost and exposed a reindeer corpse that had been frozen in the ice. Shortly after, there was an anthrax outbreak that killed a child and infected 20 others. The outbreak was traced back to the reindeer corpse, which had been infected with the bacteria 75 years earlier. COVID-19 has been a rude awakening that public health systems must better prepare for disease outbreaks. We spoke with Dr. Frank Richards, a leading public health practitioner at the Carter Center, to learn more about the connection between the causes of climate change and diseases like COVID-19, and how we can better prepare. So we are here with Dr. Frank Richards, who has a lengthy background in public health, He earned his medical degree from Cornell University and spent 23 years with the US Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, where he worked in the Division of Parasitic Diseases and Malaria. He currently works with the Carter Center, where he was the director of the center's River Blindness Elimination Program, Lymphatic Filariasis Elimination Program, and Schistosomiasis Control Program. He also was co-director of the Malaria Program, he currently serves the Carter Center as a senior advisor on these diseases. He has received numerous awards and has authored or co authored more than 200 articles, letters, and chapters. So, Dr. Frank Richards, we are so excited to be speaking with you today. Thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure. So you have worked with the uh, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, as well as the Carter Center, on malaria among, obviously, as we just discussed, many other diseases. What kind of disease is malaria, and how do public health practitioners, such as yourself, work to control it?
0: Well, thanks very much. Malaria is a really important disease. It's caused by a blood parasite, parasite that lives in your red blood cells and the infection is transmitted from person to person by a mosquito and uh, it's a certain type of mosquito that bites at night and malaria is um, one of the biggest killers of uh, especially young children children under five and it also has a terrible um, effect on pregnant women um, who are also at increased risk from dying from malaria and it's located all around the world. It used to be um, in the United States and Europe, but um, it's now been eliminated from those countries, meaning that you don't have to walk around in the United States worrying about getting a mosquito bite and catching malaria. What, What public health practitioners do with regards to malaria really depends on where you live, but if you're working in Africa where, 99% of the deaths from malaria occur, or in general, any country that has transmission of malaria, meaning mosquitoes are infected with a parasite and can infect you, the big effort is to try to control the biting of the mosquito, either through insecticide use or controlling the development of the mosquito in water, mosquitoes develop in water, or protecting people Either using repellents or importantly, bed nets. The mosquitoes bite at night. So if you sleep under bed nets, you protect yourself. And then the other important piece is if you get sick from malaria, to um, have a health system that's um, able to make the diagnosis quickly and provide treatment because it is a treatable condition. And um, well, in the best of all worlds, no one would die from malaria.
2: We know that the research has shown that climate changes effects on ecosystems in particular habitat degradation and temperature change may impact the spread of disease and increase the risk of disease around the world. Can you explain this link to us?
0: Sure. And since we started talking about malaria, maybe I can use malaria as an example. Um, As, as we said, malaria is transmitted by mosquitoes and mosquitoes are very ecologically linked and temperature change can really have a big impact on the transmission of malaria for example um, if you live at very high altitudes where the temperature is cold even if it's in africa you have very little risk of getting infected by the malaria parasite um, mainly because at the low temperatures, the metabolism of the mosquitoes slows down. Mosquitoes are cold-blooded, if you will. They're not like us, that can humans can regulate their temperature. But mosquitoes and reptiles and snakes and things like that, if it gets cold, they slow down. If it gets warm, they speed up. So warmer temperatures make mosquitoes... Um, more likely to bite more more quickly which is important in the transmission but it also means that at temperatures where where there were too cold for the mosquitoes to live um, they're now able to move into and so what we can see is with temperature um, increases climate change we see that malaria and other diseases that we call vector-borne diseases mosquitoes or or black flies or sand flies or ticks um, all of those kinds of insects do a lot better if it's warmer and so what you find is that these diseases can expand and we're seeing this in the united states with certain conditions like yellow fever or conditions like um, dinghy which are primarily seen in the tropics are now able to move into um, the southern part of the united states because the temperatures have gone up and allow the vector mosquitoes to breed and transmit the infection um, in those areas.
1: Do
2: you anticipate that this link between climate and disease spread changing the way that public health workers will address diseases in the future?
0: Yes, I do. I think the important thing to consider is that if with increased temperature and climate change, the disease diseases that normally affected the tropics move into the subtropics um, and and northern or if you're in the summer uh, the southern hemisphere further south um, uh, areas um, cooler areas then health um, practitioners in those places need to number one learn about these new diseases because they people don't think about these conditions in the united states they now have to think about them they need to improve their communication with the public and medical professionals about new risks and um, the ways to treat these conditions or vaccinate people against these conditions and last of all the what we call the surveillance system which is very important in public health the system of detecting if there's an outbreak of cases of of these new diseases, you need to fix the surveillance system or expand the surveillance system to be able to detect outbreaks and then to come up with a plan for the response to control the outbreak. So the, the answer is changing the way that the public health workers address the conditions, they need to learn about them, they need to improve their surveillance and response and they need to communicate to the public and medical professionals.
2: Pivoting over to coronavirus now, can you talk about how we think coronavirus began to spread to humans and what evidence we have in regards to its potential origin?
0: Well, so of course, everyone's talking about coronavirus, COVID-19. And I think it's important for the audience to recognize that we've only known about COVID-19 since November, 2019. And most of these other conditions that I've mentioned, we've known about for decades, if not hundreds of years. So to be able to give people all the answers about COVID-19 is just beyond what we're able to do. But, but one thing is, is fairly clear. The, the coronavirus as a class are primarily found in bats, you know, the, the bats that live in caves. And it's really remarkable. A survey was done some years ago amongst um, thousands of animals and it concluded that 99% of the coronaviruses in the world are found in bats. And so it's, it's pretty clear that coronavirus came from bats. Now, whether it was spread directly from bats to people or it went through another animal, uh, which coronaviruses have been known to do. For example, one of the coronaviruses causing uh, a Middle East syndrome came from bats into camels, and then from camels to people. So that's known to happen as well. We're not really clear as to the link between bats and humans, but we are certain that the origin of the coronavirus is from bats. It is very clear therefore that coronavirus was not created by some sneaky person in some sneaky lab, but that it naturally occurred and came from bats, either directly from bats to humans or through another animal to humans.
2: How might the ecological changes associated with climate change affect the introduction of diseases in the future?
0: I think we've talked a bit about climate change, but I would like to make the point that ecological changes are occurring that may not necessarily be um, associated with climate change that can affect diseases of the future. I mean, we've talked about increased warming with climate change and how that can change uh, certain conditions, but remember, when, when I spoke about coronavirus, and bats, one of the concerns on ecological change with the coronavirus is human activity that brings us closer to bats, deforestation, destruction of land or seas through pollution, such as plastic bags and in the seas, or I think the changes that we see from ecology will affect diseases or conditions of humans, be it From less agriculture and less food to malnutrition that can occur, reduction of the ability to find fresh water, which will make people migrate to other places where there is water, which can give rise to all sorts of social disruption as the result of migration. Or, as I mentioned, deforestation, which brings humans closer to animals such as bats or monkeys Um, in the case of Ebola you know, I think that there are lots of concerns about ecological changes that result in the introduction of new diseases, or I should say, new human conditions, which are very important to think about.
2: So how can people get involved? What are some resources that they could use to learn more about this topic?
0: Well, I hope that your audience, knowing this is a young audience is dedicated to continuing to learn about the challenges of ecological changes global warming and in this case the relationship with disease and have a dedication to not just to learning but to being aware of false information misinformation disinformation that's out there so I really hope that the audience, gets really excited about the search for truth through good science that understand how science works and then moves ahead not just the thinking about activism and volunteerism and what they can do but in the long term think about what their career choices might be what what they might want to do to dedicate their professional lives to helping solve this issue because one thing's for sure young people are the future young people will be in charge one day and hopefully it won't be too late to um, literally save the world
2: thank you so much to miss levine and dr richards for joining us and explaining the intersections between climate change covid19 and public health echoing what we've heard in our previous episodes about the environmental justice impacts of climate change and the role environmental change has on disease spread As we learned from Ms. Levine and Dr. Richards, one of the best ways for us to get involved is to educate ourselves and raise awareness among others. Learning more will help us better understand how to proactively address these concerns and protect vulnerable communities. If you'd like to donate or get more directly involved with these organizations, you can find more information about Rye St. James and the Carter Center in our show notes. Today's episode was written and produced by Lauren Ballatin and me, Meg Withers. Music was provided by Zola Bergerschmitz and
1: graphics by Tyler Stern. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. You can learn more about us on our website and YouTube channel, Emory Climate Talks. Stay tuned for our next episode focused on the impacts the pandemic has had on plastic use.